Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Speak, be silent, have your discourse, hold your discourse, mansplain, or be ever so polite and attentive. Gossip, hold your tongue, roll it around seven times seventy, or run it. Psychoanalyze your neighbor, or choose wisely not to judge others. Who cares? Rehear Ecclesiastes. You are nothing new under the sun. You are not a judge, the judge, or anyone's judge. Look down on yourself as hard as you can while you still can. No one cares if you are impressed or disgusted. Your compliments are a pat on your own back. Your critique means nothing. Your praise is empty. Your assessment of the situation is your own reflection, a phantom's shadow. Your sage advice is satanic. You are not God. You are not a reference. I do not believe in you. Believe me, I do not trust you. I don't care, and we don't care. If Jeremiah were alive today, he would shout it three times. This is not the temple of the Lord. Wait! They did shout it three times, and so did he. We don't care. About what? Your deceptive and lying words uttered at the gate. No one said you were a dummy. That's the problem. Knowledge, like incense, stinks. The power of the Lord has been entrusted to you, and you, O dialogians, like the Pharisees and the law teachers, talk amongst yourselves. You talk to yourselves, for yourselves, about yourselves, about what one of you said about yourselves when you thought you were talking about a god. In fact, you were talking about your gods all along. Like the song says, Habibi, it was you, only you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, O American, is your permanent teenage identity crisis. A guy is lying there on the ground, paralyzed. Kids are under the rubble. Their limbs are being amputated without anesthesia. Children are afflicted by heart attacks from sleep deprivation and stress. Pregnant mothers, the sign of God's promise in Isaiah, are targeted. And you, O Pharisee, want to converse? You, who call yourself a law teacher, want to talk about what? Your knowledge? Your value? 
your institution, your title, your building. You trust in lying words to no avail. You utter deceptive words. No wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What lies did Herod spin this week for the New York Times? Enlighten us so we can expand our syllabi, build our temples, and lead more of God's children astray. If only women were in charge, you explained to Mustafa, then Hillary and Nikki would save the children. Keep dreaming, Homelander. As for bumpkins like me, we are here not just to talk, but to walk the power of the Lord and its consonants, which any punk can submit to with time and pressure. And in doing so, communicate it to others. We, the dummies, preach Christ crucified. We know you are intelligent. We are just waiting for you, even hoping that you will become dumb like us. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 516 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've had many a discussion recently, Richard, about the problem of translation, but I'm not sure that's the right way to phrase it. We could say translation is a problem, but I'm still not convinced that's the right way to phrase it. We could accuse translation of being an interpretation. I think we're getting warmer. But then again, I'm still not comfortable with that way of talking about translation because unfortunately, when I hear people talk about the Bible on the news, in books, in articles, and essays, they still use interpretation as a positive term. They use it as though we're being rescued from fundamentalism by interpretation. It's not so. Fundamentalism is interpretation. Neoliberalism, progressivism is interpretation. Your progressive liberal interpretation, your enlightened understanding of Scripture, is a bomb wrapped in a blanket, not interested. It's not helping. You're part of the problem. So please don't say that interpretation is okay. So I'm still struggling to find a way to explain the problem. I want to say the impossibility of translation, but that doesn't work because it sounds hyperbolic since we're stuck with translations. We have them all over the place. So I'm not sure what to say. Maybe it's as simple as translations don't work. Translations are 
a kind of Frankenstein. You're piecing together something and pumping it up with electricity and saying, look, mom, it can walk. (laughs) Yes, it can walk. It doesn't mean that it's human. That's what a translation is. And you'll see today as we go through the text, we're going to take on a couple of verses, that there are some things that simply don't work. They are Frankensteinian. Why do we keep harping on this? Because I know deep down inside, people don't really believe what we're saying. You just want to, as the Oracle said in one of the Matrix films, eat your cookie and drink a glass of milk and feel right as rain and go back to reading your colonial Bible and leading your Bible study. You could do that. I mean, somebody actually asked me about some film called The Chosen. Don't ask me about that. Don't ask me for my opinion about the latest Jesus movie. I don't want to talk about translations of the Bible. I don't care if there's some TV show that uses a few Hebrew words. It ain't scripture. I'm not interested. Don't tell me about your coloring books, your cartoons, your TV shows, your children's programs, your children's Bibles. I'm not interested in the King James Colonial Bible. Why would I want to talk about your, I don't know, your movie or your TV show? We're trying to get people to come face to face with the work of dealing with the archaeology of words and accepting the fact that everything else is a Frankenstein. It's like a joke I heard recently that God speaks English and thank goodness for King James who came along 2,000 years later to write a Bible that God could finally understand. (laughs) This is the problem is people really don't understand the amount that they're assuming and that they're bringing to the text by hearing it and reading it in English or any other language because the whole point of Scripture is that we need to hear. Now, for someone who doesn't know Greek, if they understand the distance between the English and the Greek, that can help them understand what they're hearing. It's up to the one who's teaching Scripture, even if the one teaching Scripture in English is stuck with an English-speaking audience, to bridge that gap to help bring them in. If the audience is hearing this and hearing a few words of Greek so that they can really start to gather what are the links that are happening here and what is supposed to be conveyed in the Greek. And it's really hard in an American setting because so many Americans don't know another language besides English. Knowing even what it means to just translate, you know, I've talked to professional interpreters and translators and someone will say, oh, just write that in your language. Languages have a whole life of their own and a whole history of their own. That's why understanding scriptural Greek and its connection to scriptural Hebrew is essential. I mean, I've had big discussions with Israelis about the differences between biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew. They might be reticent to admit to the gap between the two, okay, but they'll say like, yeah, no one speaks like that in Israel. That's not how we talk. That's not what that word means in modern Hebrew. So even a modern Israeli who speaks Hebrew can hear the distance between biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew. These are the differences. If you're reading the Mishnah, which is just a few hundred years after the Bible was written, 
you can see the differences in how Hebrew is written. Understanding these nuances is really important. And what is lost when it's translated, you have to get into the original languages before you start to see how big that gap is. The only way you're going to understand the gap between the English and the Greek is by trying to cross it. You need to know when you're looking at an English word in the Old Testament, when the specific root, kum, is used, when you see the word establish, when you see the word arise, when you see the word stand, which root is being used? You need to mark it down so that you know what the author is doing. Just on that basic level, how many times have we heard someone preach on Paul's letter and talk about an English word as though it's connecting to something when in the original Greek, it means nothing because the author is using a different word that connects to a different term that was translated seven different ways because the person translating slash interpreting was worried about philosophical meaning, not the archaeology of words. So simply by looking at the Greek to see with your eyeballs which terms, which roots are used, even if you're not a master of biblical Greek, you can use your eyeballs to see on the page when did Paul use the word nevma? When did Paul use the word psychi? Two basic words. You can differentiate the structure of an argument, but that's not what people do. They make all kinds of assumptions by looking at the English text, and then they're lost, and they build something that Paul is destroying when they stand up to expound. Worse, they're building something on top of a colonial text that is stealing land from Native Americans. Please quote me because what I'm stating is a fact. So technically, when you expound on any variation of the King James text, you are building on Native American land. How can you say that, Father Mark? How can you preach on an English text? Immediately, he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So I talked about this expression, God up. There's no reason to reiterate. The term is anastas, anistimi, which is the same term as anesti, Christos anesti. But the main point here is that this person is being stood up as a reference to go before, amad, to be stood up in a position, whom arise, to be put in place. And here, it could align to either term. This word, anistimi, in Greek, is the rendering of both words in Hebrew. But again, the key point is that this person is being stood up before them. And this word in Greek Enopion is an important word. It's translated here as before. It's an important word in the Septuagint, and it's an important word in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, specifically in chapter 1, we hear repeatedly that he will be great, in verse 15 of chapter 1, and go before Enopion, the Lord. De facto, this first usage of the term establishes that 
enopion is about judgment. Rarmegas enopion tu kiriu. You stand before the Lord in order to ascertain whether or not you are megas, whether or not you are great. That's what we're talking about here in Luke. And it will be established before the Lord, before the people, before all, whether or not John, the teaching he received, and the one for whom he prepares the way is megas. But the real question is whether or not he is megas in the sight of the Father. He must not drink wine and strong drink. We hear it again in verse 17 of chapter 1. He will go on before Enopion in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And again in verse 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence Enopion of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. So, systematically, we're talking about the presence, the face. And it's not only linked to judgment, but to the place where you hear the news from God, from the beginning, from chapter 1. You go before the face of God. But there's a progression, an itinerary, because now... We hear about the one who goes before the Lord, who must not drink wine and strong drink, in the spirit and power of Elijah in order to establish for the Lord a people who are prepared for him. Again, that's John the Baptist, an allusion to the Apostle Paul. And now we're talking about the champion of the Lord, who again stands in the presence Enopion of God, but is sent to speak news. In Luke chapter 1, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness, Enopion, before him all our days. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before Enopion, the Lord to prepare his ways, talking about John the Baptist again. So there's a flow. On the one hand, it's going before the face of God. And on the other hand, it's going before God to prepare the way. And now we have one here who is stood up to go before the people as a witness. That's how I'm hearing this. Now, Enopion aligns to multiple terms in Hebrew. The first one is obvious, and that term is fana, which means the front, the face, the head. And, of course, there's a classic verse in Exodus 33, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, fanim al-fanim, just as a man speaks to his friend. So that corresponds to the early usage of enopion in Luke chapter 1. In Arabic, fania means something that is transient or perishable, something passing away, something mortal. So you can hear the connection that when you stand in the presence, enopion, when you stand before the face, fana of the Lord, you... If you don't pass the test, 
you perish to stand before the face of God is a life or death matter, which when you think about someone going before the face of the king or the face of the deity is exactly what you would expect. Another term in Hebrew that also corresponds to an opion is ein, which means the eye or the thing that you look to or you look with. Also the same word in Arabic. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my Aina, in my sight, and I have known you by name. This is Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. So in this sense, you are talking about the paralytic now being stood up as a reference and going before the people as a witness visible to them. It's to their face in their sight for them and at the same time against them. It is a blessing and a curse at once because it is the content of what Gabriel heard. It is the power of the Lord referenced in chapter 5. That is the measure of the greatness of the one who stood before the presence of the Lord. So he is, in a sense, in the chain of the itinerary of Enopion, which is the itinerary of the witness of this word that was preached and handed down from Elohim to Gabriel from the very beginning of this book. Remember we talked, Richard, about the word of the Lord moving from womb to womb, and now this word has reached the paralytic and has made him stand up to walk according to its precepts. It made him pick up his stretcher. Aras in Greek, ero, corresponds to the Hebrew nasa in Arabic, nasha. Nasa means to lift or to take up, to raise. In Arabic, it means he grew up, he rose, he took. Yesah portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, so they feasted and drank freely from him. Genesis 43:34. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded. The word in translation is loaded, but it's the same Hebrew triliteral. Noon seen Aleph, with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded. Again, it's the same triliteral. Noon, seen, aleph. The same three Hebrew consonants with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. Again, it appears in Exodus chapter 25, referring to the poles on the sides of the ark used to carry Nassau, the ark with them. So what is being lifted up before everybody as a blessing or a curse? The last term that I find very interesting in the line of this story is this word that is translated as lying, katakime, which in Hebrew is very interesting in the Septuagint translation. It only appears twice in Proverbs. 
And the word is shakeb, which means to lie down. Sekaba in Arabic, which means to be poured out. Proverbs 6, verse 9. How long will you lie down, tishkab, O sluggard? When will you arise, taqum, from your sleep? That's the same root, qum. When will you arise, taqum, from your sleep? So there's an expectation that it's time to get up. Why are you being so lazy? How long will you lie down? How long will you be poured out like a sluggard? Reflecting, you know, the influence of the Semitic. When will you get up and continue this message reflected in the itinerary of Enopion in the Gospel of Luke? When will you submit to the charge of the angel Gabriel and carry this teaching forward, glorifying God? Jesus is trying to teach about the forgiveness of sins through the healing of this paralytic, allowing him to walk. But the audience has been very specific. Remember, in Greek, you can tell when he's speaking to one person or when he's speaking to the broader audience. So when he, in verse 25, picks up his bed in front of them, didn't need to say in front of them, obviously in front of them. If you imagine the scene, how is it possible that he did it in secret? How is that possible? That's not possible. But Luke added in front of them, because Luke has been very specific all along about who Jesus is speaking to. And here, the man's actions reflect the words that make up the point that Jesus was trying to make, that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. So he had to rise and pick up his bed that he was laying on. Pick up the thing that he was laying on. Interestingly, that's what it says. Pick up the thing that he was laying on because they needed to see this. And Luke underscored that. Another point about translation, this verse could only be written by Luke. And you cannot see it in English. And I just want to bring up a small point. When he says immediately, so many times we've been talking about ephthys, 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 ephthios, ephthios, ephthios. We talked about that in Mark all the time. This is not that word. This is parachrima. Parachrima appears 10 times in the book of Luke and seven times in the book of Acts. It has Luke all over it. So when you hear that word, you know you're in the book of Luke, but you can't know it in English. If I say immediately, what book does that come from? Like all of them? I mean, who knows? But if I say parachrima, which book does that come from? It's Luke and Acts. Ten times in Luke, seven times in Acts, 17 times. And that's pretty much it in the New Testament. So again, this texture, this feeling of what Luke is saying, Luke is not just copying from Mark. Luke is saying his own thing. He's an author. He uses words that he wants to use in the way that he wants to use them as an author. And parachrima, instead of ephthys or ephthios, that's one of the things that he does. And finally, this point that it says that he was glorifying God. It doesn't say about the people yet. It just talks about the person who was able to walk, who couldn't walk before, the one who was lying, who is now standing, the one who was lying as if asleep, who is now aroused and awake and able to walk according to the teaching that Jesus has taught. How is this going to come next? We'll see again that this glory, this glorifying, this act of giving glory to 
is coming up again in the next sentence. So we have this word that's repeated in both verses, but we'll see how different it is when it is this individual person, and then what happens in the next verse. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Another example, I appreciate your comment about the word immediately because anyone preaching in English would say, oh, look, just like Mark, Luke is really excited and immediately something happened and you you can't do it. It breaks down because as you said, Richard, it's a different word. Well, guess what? There's another example of something breaking down because what on earth does struck with astonishment mean? It means something in English when you're talking about meaning. But listen to the Greek, ecstasis eleven. Listen carefully to the Greek. I'm going to say it again because it sounds scandalous when you understand the terminology. Ecstasis eleven. Ecstasis, ecstasy. That is the word that is translated as astonishment. The word is ecstasy, ecstasis. So what are we saying about the word Ecstasies. The word eleven, lamvano, literally means it's binary in Greek. In Hebrew, it's more versatile. So when we look at how it's used in its alignment with the consonantal Hebrew in the Old Testament, you'll see a range of use cases. But in Greek, it's binary. It means take or receive. So you either receive ecstasy or you take ecstasy, that's it. You take it or you receive it. Now, what could this possibly correspond to in the Old Testament? That's an interesting question. One possibility is the verb lakah, which means to take or to grasp or to seize. Now, this word, like lamvano, could also mean to receive. It has other uses. It could also mean to take away or to bring along. There's more variability. But here's where it gets kind of interesting. In Arabic, laqahat means she conceived. And alqaha means he impregnated. These terms can also refer to being vaccinated or vaccine depending on the context. But understand, in one connotation of the original triliteral, we're talking about impregnating or conceiving, taking or receiving. How do you get from taking or receiving to being struck with astonishment? A literal translation would be all received ecstasy. Would that be a good literal translation, Rich? Yeah, I mean, receiving ecstasy... Maybe, but I mean, no one talks like that in English. A translation should be probably not nonsense in English. And so that's where you end up in trouble because there's no literal way to translate it. So you're going to be stuck with coming up with the English phrase or English word that comes closest to the meaning. And already you're having to make some leaps. How about this, Rich? And all took ecstasy? <laughs> I'm not sure how that would go over in a public reading before the assembly in English. But the point is, 
they were all struck with astonishment is not what the text says. And I could see people pondering, oh, they were struck with astonishment. What does it mean to be struck with astonishment? I've heard people talk about being struck with astonishment as though someone was mentally struck with something. That has nothing to do with what's happening in the text. We must do the archaeology of words. So what do I mean? You read this in English. They were all struck with astonishment. But you don't preach on the meaning of struck with astonishment. You preach on the terminology. What is the usage of the term ecstasis in the Greek manuscript of Luke? Are there Hebrew words that correspond to the word ecstasis? What is the word eleven? Where else does that word appear? How is it used? Based on how it's used, what does it mean? How many times is it used? This is primary. Once you've done this primary work, then you can step back and hear the text in English or French or German or whatever language you speak, whatever translation you're dealing with, but only when you've done the archaeology of words so that the terminology deflates you and controls you so that you are not fooled because no one in the Gospel of Luke is struck with astonishment. That is the point. And I am certain that some fruitcake somewhere could build an entire religion around the three words struck with astonishment. That is the problem. We have to somehow wrap our minds around this dilemma so that we are deflated in order to submit to the words of Scripture so that we can glorify God. You can't glorify God if you are glorified by your own mental constructions. And struck with astonishment is a mental construction of the English language and the translators of the Greek. This word is so tricky. I mean, if you know Greek, actually it's harder than if you just hear that phrase, they were amazed. That's what the King James says. They were all amazed. That's a shortcut if ever there were one. That's the closest they could come. But if you look at this word, I mean, sometimes it means in Greek a trance, like when God put Adam to sleep in Genesis 2.21 in order to take the rib out of him. That was an ecstasis. Sometimes it's fear. It translates trembling in places. In other places, it's hard to even see its connection with Hebrew. So this word itself is complicated. We don't have enough time to go into what this word means because it has such a broad meaning in Scripture. A Greek-speaking audience would have understood that this has a far range, and by receiving this ecstasy, it's a trance, it's fear. In a moment, it says in the same verse that they were filled with fear. So hard to say exactly what they were filled with. So that's like, uh, amazed. Now, this makes me nervous because there are a lot of times in Mark when they were amazed, it was thavmazo. And that's a different word in Greek completely, but it's translated with the same word in English, erasing then the distinction. This is not thavmazo, and we don't have thavmazo here at all. We have that they were filled with this ecstasis, or they received this ecstasis, and then were filled with fovu, with fear. Then we have this word in between that they glorified God. Now, having experienced Mark and Matthew, I'm still nervous when the people get beside themselves amazed by what's happening ecstasy? Is it something that is good? Is it something that demonstrates their confusion? Probably more the confusion, because whereas Luke and Mark and Matthew are different 
authors and we do see very different texts, crowds are crowds and people are people. So I already don't have a lot of hope that they're going to be understanding the correct teaching from what they're supposed to be seeing, because it's really not just about what they're seeing, but about what they're hearing. Because don't forget, originally it was, your sins are forgiven. That's what they were supposed to hear. And they were not amazed. There was no ecstasis, and there was no fear when they heard your sins are forgiven. Just you had some leaders who were grumbling. But once they saw him stand up, then they were all ecstasis and fovu and all this kind of thing. So it makes me nervous. But we see the parallel between the man who walks away to his house glorifying God. And then we have them who received this ecstasis and glorified God filled with fear and said, we have seen strange things today. Once more with Greek, what is the strange thing that they saw? A paradoxa, which sounds like a paradox, which is an interesting thing like, oh, we didn't expect to see that. But in Greek, paradoxa comes from the same word as doxa, which means glory. So it's related to glory. It's somehow next to the glory, para voxa. And one can't help but hear the voxazon that the man was expressing as he was walking to his house, glorifying God. The edoxazon that the people were expounding as they glorified God. And this paradoxa that they remarked, that they saw when he got up when he was able to do this. They weren't able to figure out how what was happening connected with the words. This is why it's a paradoxa. That's why it's strange to them. So their glory to God, I don't know. They just seem like they're surprised. What does the glory mean from someone who's just surprised? What are they able to make of this ecstasis? Is it a feeling that electrifies their body for a verse? Then they go home and figure out who won the chariot races, and then they move on with their lives? Or is there something of substance that's happening here when Jesus is not doing this for this man, but he's doing it for others that they might learn? Are they going to learn? Eh, we'll see. Chances are not good, but I'm still rooting for them. I think another example when we're talking about this question of giving weight to God, because ultimately glory is kabod, kabed, right? In Hebrew, it's the weightiness of God. The fact of the matter is, here in this mashal, there is weightiness. There is weight given to God. We are deflated by something important that's happened in this example. What remains to be seen is whether or not the characters in the story will submit. You know, if you think about the parable of the sower, there's no seed in this mashal. I'm appealing now to a different parable. But the question here is, a teaching has been preached. God is glorified in his teaching because weight is given to him in the witness of the one who was raised from the bed of sickness, who was a sluggard and is now walking according to the precepts. But what remains to be seen in the judgment is who truly is giving weight to the one who raised him from the bed of sickness and who is not. And I think that's the tension that you keep hearing in the storyline. And here's the critical point. The man who picked up his pallet and walked is not equal to everyone else in the story. The walking gives weight to God. Everybody else 
is just talking. Talking is not walking. And remember in the Gospel of Matthew, we learned all about the uselessness of lip service. It's for God to judge who is glorifying the gift of his teaching and who is not glorifying the gift of his teaching in their deeds. But God is definitely glorified in his teaching, and to know his teaching is to make it functional, and you make it functional by walking, by picking up your palate. Talking and walking are interconnected with knowledge of the scriptural God. It's a very powerful example. They may be afraid. They may be convinced that what they've seen on this day is remarkable. It doesn't mean they won't turn their backs, which makes, in a way, the lip service of the weight that they're giving to the instruction a sort of Damocles over their head, a judgment against them, and that weight becomes a sledgehammer. So I'm thankful for this point that you keep raising because the more they give glory, the heavier that sledgehammer becomes if they turn their back. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.